Some years ago, the son of a very close friend of ours was coming to visit us, and I got a phone call from him a few hours out, and he said, um, I made a very big mistake. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, I pulled up to a gas pump. He had a Volkswagen, and he put diesel fuel in a gas engine tank. Now, if you haven't figured this out, that's not a good idea. It means that the spark plugs get messed up, the intake uh, manifold gets messed up, it uh, messes up the, the fuel filter. I mean, it's a major problem, and the car wasn't drivable. They had to flush the gas tank and everything out. You know, it's equally a problem. I grew up working on a dairy farm, and we had mostly diesel engine tractors, but we had one gas engine, old uh, Ferguson tractor, and you had to know which one you were driving if, because you're going to put fuel in it. You had to put diesel in the diesel ones because if you, if you put gas fuel in a diesel engine, you will blow the engine quickly. It's not made to operate on that fuel. Just like if you put diesel fuel in a gas engine, it's going to mess it up pretty badly. So if you didn't learn anything else in church today, you got that down, okay? My question for you on the last Sunday of 2018, is what desires are fueling your life? Because just like the wrong, the wrong fuel in a gas tank will ruin an engine, so the wrong desires fueling your life can destroy your life. Turn with me in the book of James, if you would, to the fourth chapter. I want to read just the first five verses. Think about what James is saying to us about our desires. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask, you don't pray. You ask or you pray and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your, your passions, your desires. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he, that is God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for the clarity with which it speaks to us, that like a scalpel, it does surgery on our soul. It exposes and lays bare what desires are fueling our lives. And so we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to not only understand, but also to apply to our lives your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. James, in this uh, paragraph, is really focusing in our attention on what desires are fueling your life. And I, I want you, as you listen to this, as you think about this, I want you to wrestle with that question. As you cross the threshold from one year to another, what are the desires that are fueling you? Because, friends, 
what we desire the most and, and the desires that are controlling us will actually control our choices and our actions and our relationships in ways we don't always understand. And James is here helping us to understand that. And so the first thing he does here is he tells us that selfish desires will fuel conflict. Selfish desires will fuel conflict. He asks a, a number of questions in this paragraph, and uh, he starts off with two of those questions. He said, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Uh, the word quarrel is a word that was literally used for an, a, a war, armed conflict between nations. It's an international crisis, That's what he's talking about. It's a word from which we get our word polemics, but it, in, in this use it's talking about War, all out, battle, armies, the whole nine yards. And then the second word he uses is about quarrels. That's talking about interpersonal conflict. So the problem internationally is the same problem personally in relationships. Talking about quarrels or conflict within marriage, within, between parents and children, between siblings, between friends, even sometimes in churches. And he's addressing this issue. So where does that come from? Where does all that, the wars and conflict come from? And then he, he asks a second question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your passions, selfish desires, are at war inside you. The word that is translated here, passions, is a word from which we get our English word, hedonism. Hedonism is a philosophy of life that says... Meaning, purpose, fulfillment in life is found by giving full bent to your desires. Just, just going after whatever makes you feel good. I remember in the late 1960s, early 70s, there were bumper stickers and T-shirts that actually said that. If it feels good, finish the sentence. Do it. If it feels good, do it. That is, in a, in a capsulized form, the philosophy, the worldview of hedonism that the highest good, meaning, and fulfillment in life is found by just giving full vent to pleasure. Now, God created pleasure. We're going to talk about that later, that not all desires are wrong. But God didn't create us to simply give in to our passions, our desires, hedonism. Friend, I want to just, I want to just push that to the extreme. If hedonism is true, then all of us should be on cocaine. Now, please don't go from here and say, Pastor Jeffrey said we should go out and be on cocaine. That's not what I'm saying. Why would I say that? Because the thing about cocaine that causes people to be addicted to it is not simply the chemical dependence. It is the fact that it creates such a sensation of pleasure. And it is that sense that causes people to get addicted to it. Now, you say, well, well I wouldn't do that then why in the world, if, if, if that is what gives meaning and purpose to life, pleasure, then that's the ultimate form of that. But you also know that not only is it illegal, but it is destructive to bodies. I, I've ministered to people who have been addicted to cocaine, and I want to suggest to you that's not a good idea. Let's make that clear. Not a good idea. Hedonism believes that that is a good idea. But he says, listen, what that really does, when you have selfish desires, it's going to fuel conflict. Conflict. Uh, he talks about the fights and the quarrels, and it's at war within you, which is another military term. 
And, and why is that? Because of the frustration that it brings when we try to live that way. Look at verse 2. You desire, you, you lust after this pleasure, and you can't have. Just call that frustration. That's what that is. And so you murder. I'm not suggesting that you murder, but I am suggesting that a whole lot of murders that take place are because of people's frustration in terms of their desires. And so they steal, they, they, they rape, they do all kinds of things, and then kill the person that they are committing that crime against. Why? Because they are giving full vent to their selfish desires. And James is addressing that here. A frustration of not finding fulfillment. And then he says again, he said, you covet, you have this yearning, you can't be satisfied when someone has something other than you and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So selfish desires fuel conflict. Matter of fact, the next time you have a conflict within your marriage, within your household, ask this question. What self-centered desires are right now driving me? What's fueling this conflict right now? On your part, I'm not saying go to your mate or your, your parents and say, you know, it's because of your selfish desires. Our pastor said that. No, 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 I wouldn't suggest that. But turn, look in the mirror and say, what selfish desires are fueling this conflict? And if you're really honest, it's a desire for power or control or that someone's not meeting your needs. And most of the conflict in our life is caused by selfish desires. James says that right here on the authority of the Word of God. So selfish desires fuel conflict, and it causes war within us. He says that in verse 1, they're at war within you. Listen, you may want to write a couple of these passages down. 1 Peter 2.11. Peter says, passions that wage war in your members. Passions wage war in your members. In other words, there's a battle going on between between God and, and self in that battle. Romans 7, Paul in, in Romans 7 is talking about this, this battle that's going on inside him. And in verse 23, he said, I see my members, my body, another law, another principle, waging war against the law of my mind, which is the word of God in his mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that's in my members. He's saying there's a war going on in my soul between selfish desire and doing the will of God. My friend, conflict comes because of selfish desires. Comes because of that. And look what he says secondly. James says, godly desires fuel prayer. And I've taken this next one and I've kind of turned it 180 degrees. Because as he talks about desire, he said, you do not have, the end of verse 2, because you do not ask. And then he says you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to, to spend it on your own passions. So godly desires fuels prayer. Uh, James addresses two problems in prayer as it relates to our desires. The first one is that of prayerlessness. He says you don't have because you don't ask. You, you think somehow that fulfillment and meaning is going to be found somewhere else besides God, and so you don't go to God in prayer, and you don't ask God. You don't have, he said, because you don't ask. James talks a lot about prayer in this, in this short five-chapter book. Chapter 1, verse 5, he said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask God. Pray. 
In James chapter 5, he has a lengthy passage about prayer, starting at verse 13 down to verse 18. And basically he says, if anybody's happy, sing psalms. If anybody is struggling, let him pray. If anybody is sick, call for the elders of the church and let them pray. What, what James is saying in chapter 5 is in every situation of life, prayer is the appropriate response. Prayer is not like the fire extinguisher with a sign over it that says, for emergency use only. Prayer is to be our response. It's how God will meet the deepest longings of our soul through prayer. Why? Because God created you in his image. God created you for himself. And in prayer, we come to God humbly acknowledging, God, I need you. So one of the problems he said is we don't pray. The second problem, he says, is we pray with wrong motivation. And it's one of the reasons for unanswered prayer. He said, you ask but you don't receive. In other words, unanswered prayer, because you ask wrongly, you ask, one translation has it, wickedly, to spend it on your passions. My friends, some people treat prayer as if God is Santa Claus and you're coming with your list. He's not, and that's not prayer. Some people treat prayer like God is the celestial vending machine, and instead of putting in my, my money to get that, that candy bar, I put in my prayer, and God gives me what I need. And people get frustrated with God because he doesn't always do what they want. Friends, I, just, I, have, I have important news for you. Prayer is not getting your will done in heaven. It's getting God's will done on earth. Think about what Jesus taught about prayer and the disciples' prayer. The disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples. And Jesus taught them this model prayer. Our Father... In heaven, hallowed or or worshipped, sacred be your name. It tells us, uh, God, may your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Your kingdom come. Then comes the desire, Lord, uh, give us today our daily bread. We're dependent upon you for provision. Lead us not into temptation. Help us when we're facing our spiritual battle. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And he reminds us that we need to forgive others as we have been forgiven. And then he ends, to you be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Did you notice that prayer? That it's, the first part of it's all about God. Praying to God as Father praying about his name, praying about his kingdom, his rule in our life, praying about his will being done, and then coming with humble dependence upon him to provide for our needs, to forgive us our sins, to to help us as we forgive others, to to, um, to, to be able to submit to his will and to glorify him in all things. See, that's the kind of prayer, that's the model prayer of how to pray. And friends, when we make prayer about my list of the things I want to get done, we're praying based on our desires. But prayer is all about God's godly desires fueling your prayer. John, the apostle, in writing the fifth chapter of his little letter, said God will answer prayers when we pray in his will, which is very close to what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not about you getting your desires met. It's about God getting his desires in your life. See, the, the basic issue is this. Every good 
thing that God gives for our pleasure, for good, comes from him. Do you know that? So, so God creates food. But when we make that an ungodly thing, it becomes gluttony. God gives us the ability to earn money and to, to have a home. But when we make that an idol, it becomes materialism or covetousness. God is the one that created sex. And within marriage, it is holy and good and wholesome and for not just procreation, but for pleasure. But when we make that an idol, it becomes pornography or it becomes adultery, it becomes fornication. See, man takes good gifts from God and turns them and twists them and makes them an idol and they become then destructive. My friends, I want you to know this. You will not ever be satisfied in life until you understand this biblical central truth. God created you for himself. God did not create you for yourself. He created you for himself, and therefore meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction in life can only be found in him. Solomon, who for a period of his life was called the wisest man who ever lived, towards the end of his life, you would question that, had the opportunity to find pleasure and satisfaction in many different things. Great power, the greatest wealth of his day, building programs, learning, and multiple wives. If, if pleasure could have been found there, Solomon would have told us, but he writes the book of Ecclesiastes to tell you this. The, the key word of the book is vanity or emptiness. It's talking about the frustration, the opposite of satisfaction, with, when you try to live life, even when you have all of those pleasures without God, there is not satisfaction in life apart from God. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 73 in the closing verse says this, whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. You can't find satisfaction apart from God. You can't find even pursuing pleasure does not satisfy apart from God. That's why David in the 23rd Psalm said, the Lord's my shepherd, and I have everything that could satisfy me in him. My, later he says, my cup runs over. That's why Jesus referring to that same reality in John chapter 10, talked about Satan who comes to kill and destroy when we try to live a life that's bent just on pleasure alone. But Jesus says this, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. My friends, the greatest pleasure in life comes from living in relationship with God because you were created for that. You were designed for that. That's where pleasure is found. That's where satisfaction is found. And that's where every other pleasure finds its fulfillment not as an idol of our life, but under God, under God. It's interesting that um, C.S. Lewis said, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. An ever-increasing craving, that's mankind, for an ever-diminishing pleasure. There is not satisfaction found outside of God. I want you to notice the, the second thing. So, so godly desires fuel prayer. Worldly desires fuel ungodliness. Now, James doesn't mince words. And look when he comes to verse 4. He's almost like he's, a, he's an Old Testament prophet here. When he calls out and he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Uh, interesting that in the Old Testament, this, uh, this idea of spiritual adultery is very, very much woven in the fabric of the Old Testament. 
when God brought his people out of, of Egypt in the Exodus, he takes them to Mount Sinai and he enters into a covenant with them and he refers to that covenant using the metaphor of marriage. And when, when God's people, Israel, were unfaithful to him because they were being conformed to the idolatry of the world around them, God referred to them as being involved in spiritual adultery. And the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and especially Hosea, actually confront that and saying, you are not being faithful to the God who brought you into a covenant relationship. Jesus shows up on the planet, and he calls down the leaders of Israel, actually the priests and the, and the, the, uh, the, the Sanhedrin, he calls them down and says, listen, you need to understand you need to understand that you are committing spiritual adultery and rejecting me as Messiah. And Jesus comes on the scene in the upper room and he talks to his disciples. We actually sang about it. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I'd go to prepare a place for you. That is the words of a bridegroom to a bride. And Paul uses that same metaphor for the relationship that you and I have with Jesus Christ, that we are the bride of Christ as the church, and Christ is our bridegroom, and we are to be faithful to him in love. And so he's saying our desires, our desires, worldly desires, fuel ungodliness. So he raises this question. After, after challenging spiritual adultery, he said, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So he's addressing the problem of, of worldliness. Now, part of the difficulty in talking about this is the church has taken this concept of worldliness and turned it into a legalistic list, saying if you don't do these 10 things, then you're, uh, you're not worldly, you're godly. And if you do these 10 things, then you are, you are worldly. My friend, it's not that simple. The Pharisees were great at list keeping and they weren't godly. So what, in, what is the world and what is worldliness as he's talking about it here? Worldliness, the world is the arrangement of self-centered values, false beliefs, and sinful morals and rebellion against God. I'll say that again. What the, what the world represents when the Bible talks about it, not the world of people, not the planet, it is the arrangement of self-centered values, false beliefs, and sinful morals, and rebellion against God. The world is a kingdom ruled by Satan, dominated by self-centeredness, where mankind's shaking his fist at God and saying, I'm going after pleasure my way. And here, spiritual adultery, according to James, has to do with becoming a friend to this world. Don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Whatever, whoever wishes for friendship with the world makes himself an, an adversary to God. This is a collision of worlds. So friends, when we live as if desires are all that matter, we are matching up with the world and we are not matching up with God's kingdom. And we're making ourselves an enemy of God. Think about Abraham, who was called in the Bible the friend of God. But Abraham was a man who pursued God by faith, who obeyed God, who continued to live his life and would not be conformed to the idolatry around him. Contrast Lot, who according to the New Testament was also a believer, who pitched his tent towards Sodom and became conformed to this world and lost his influence. Which one was a friend of God? Which one was an enemy of God? And which one is more like you? 
Friend, when you live in spiritual adultery, you are being conformed to this world. Two key passages about what this really means. Romans 12, 1 and 2, the Bible says, Do not be pressed into the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The way you think determines your desires. And he says, don't let the world and its false philosophies, this false belief system, press you into it. See, every day, we're getting messages from the culture around us, through the media, through television, through uh, computers, through the printed press, through billboards, through conversations. There's a constant influence trying to get us to adapt our belief system, our desires, our life to this world. And it's constant, and it's, it's, it's intense, if you are not intentionally saying, I'm not going to be pressed into that mold of that world, of that, those self-centered values and desires, I'm not going to be pressed into that. I'm going to be transformed. Then you'll be a friend of God, and you'll find the satisfaction that that brings. 1 John 2 also says this, when you love the world and the things that are in this world more than you love God, you are being, again, an enemy of God. You cannot love God and be pressed into the, the desires, the love for this world. When you love what this world offers more than you love God. My friends, the reality is this. I've read the end of the Bible, and this world and all of its desires are going to be destroyed by God. None of it is going to last. Why would you attach your desire and your passions for that which is not lasting and give up what is eternal? That's what James is saying. He said, listen, you need to know that worldly desires fuel ungodliness. Ungodliness. One more principle that he gives here in verse 5 about our desires and what's fueling us. If you look at verse 5, he said that, do you suppose, do you think or consider, it's of no purpose, no reason, that the Scripture says, he that is God yearns jealously over the spirit that is made to dwell in us. Now, this is a very difficult verse, and I wish I had time to delve into it a bit more, but I simply say there's a couple of difficulties with this particular verse. One is, you don't find that exact quote in the Old Testament. And so when he says the Scripture says, and you don't find the exact quote, that's a little problematic, except for this. You find what he's saying thematically woven through the whole Old Testament. Then the second problem is, is he talking about the human spirit indwelling that, that God jealously yearns over, or is he talking about the Holy Spirit? And good Bible scholars disagree on this, and I've wrestled with this for two weeks, and I've come down believing it's talking about the Holy Spirit because of the context. Verse 4, talking about the reference to the, um, the uh, friendship with God and the enmity, and he's continuing to talk about God, and I believe it's referring to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when he mentions in verse 5, do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he, that is God, yearns jealously over through the Holy Spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Friends, think about this. The minute you became a Christian, that second in which you, were, you believed in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit did a, a number of wonderful things in your life in that moment, things that you've been reaping the benefit of ever since. He regenerated you, which meant he raised you from the dead and gave you the new birth. He baptized you into Christ and into his church and his body so that you have a union with Christ and every other believer. But he also indwelt you. In other words, he took up permanent residence in your life. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He's in you. 
and the Holy Spirit that indwells you, according to this verse, is a jealous God. In other words, he jealously yearns over you, desiring that you would be godly. The Spirit's desires fuel godliness. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17 says this, But this I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those passions, those desires we're talking about. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Can you relate to that? That there's a tug of war going on in your soul daily? The flesh, the, the sinful nature and its desires trying to pull you one direction? And the Holy Spirit that indwells you as God jealously is working in your life to pull you towards that which is godly? And that tug of war, it depends on your determination. What desires are going to control my life? Am I going to give in to the desires that I know are in rebellion against God, that are self-centered, that are destructive? Because those desires actually cause conflict with others, self, and God, and lead to destruction. Which desires are going to control you? And do I really believe that the greatest Fulfillment in life is found in my relationship with God. And out of that, every other pleasure takes its appropriate place. If you believe that, then you're headed for a great 2019. But if you believe that simply the, the bent towards selfish and sinful pleasure is going to satisfy you, then friend, you are heading for all kinds of conflict and destruction in your life. And our, and our world is littered with people like that. So what's fueling you? What, what's fueling your desires as you head into the new year? How much conflict in your life is fueled by selfishness? How much prayer is in your lifestyle because of your dependence on God? How much are you living like a friend of God versus a friend to the world? And how much are you operating under the Spirit's control? What's fueling your desires? God gave us desires. But God showed us in his word that the greatest fulfillment and satisfaction in our life is only found when we find our greatest pleasure in him and in him alone. Then every other pleasure and every other thing that makes life meaningful and full and complete is found in him. It's not found outside of him. It's only found in him. You don't have to live the book of Ecclesiastes to find out how empty life is apart from God. God has something better and something more in mind. Jesus said it this way, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Bow together in prayer. Just before I pray, I want to invite you to just answer that question in your own heart, in your own life right now. What's fueling your desires? What are you putting in the tank of your heart, fueling the desires of your life as you cross over the threshold to a new year? Are you living in the deception that if I just go after my desires, no matter how secretly you do that, 
It's going to destroy me. It's going to bring conflict with others, with myself, with God. It's not going to satisfy. It's not going to bring meaning. It's not going to bring pleasure. But that when I pursue friendship with God and I pursue prayer and I pursue the work of the Spirit within me, that there is fulfillment and there is purpose and there is meaning and there is satisfaction, not frustration in life. What's fueling your heart today? Father in heaven, may our hearts be fueled with a deep and abiding faith that only you can ultimately satisfy our lives. And that fulfillment and abundance and joy and real pleasure comes from having you in your rightful place on the throne of our hearts. God, may we choose friendship with you over friendship with this world. May we choose the control of your Holy Spirit rather than the control of the flesh. May we choose that which is eternal over that which is temporal. Choose what is godly over what is ungodly. May we choose to love you with the faithful covenant love because you have first loved us. May we choose Christ over self. And may we experience before the watching world so that they can see where real purpose and meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment is found in a Christ-centered life. May we desire you more than anything or anyone else. Lord, you are unfailing. You are faithful. You're worthy of our trust. And we believe that the greatest pleasure in life comes from living in fellowship with you. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. So Lord, may we in this new year seek our deepest satisfaction, our greatest fulfillment, our greatest joy, and our greatest pleasure in you. And then receive from your hand every good and perfect gift. Because Lord Jesus, we believe that you did come to give us life more abundant. And we want to live that. Before a watching world, before one another and our families, may we live finding the longing of our heart and the abundant life we have in Jesus Christ. God bless you as you go.